Good evening. The power of Christ compels you! The power of Christ compels you! Oh, yeah! What has God They will beat you, didn't you? Do I look like someone who cares what God thinks? Whoever is beaten by a werewolf and lives becomes a werewolf himself. What? I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Without people, we are nothing. Alone. Bad. Friend. Good. This week on the podcast, we have in studio <laughs> Kepi Gooley. You're not going to cut the other stuff out, are you? I don't know. I haven't decided. <laughs> this is the first issue zero. Mm-hmm. We are comic book geeks. Say hello. Somewhat. Say hello to your to your <laughs> minions and, and fans and listeners. Hello. <laughs> That's all you got? No, no British accent or anything? I get British accent all night until it's you time. You get British accent when I decide. Oh. Oh. <laughs> When the when, when the through. ghosts when grandma's ghosts possesses now you. not possesses <laughs> suggests suggests verbally suggests mm. which language to use my English or the Queen's. Well, thank you very much for being here on the Wolfman Meets. I appreciate you coming out and dealing with all my technical difficulties. Thanks for having me. What things what, worked out? What is new in Kepiland? Um, Kepiland is moving to Kepiland Phase Three. Yeah. Yeah. What happened in Phase One and Two? Uh, phase one flooded. Mm. Phase two decided to relocate to Portland. So I'm on a new adventure by the river. See what happens. Okay. Happy Land is in your heart. We're there right now. So when did uh, I Bleed Rock and Roll come out? Was that 2011? This that... is 2014. I know this is 2014. Yeah. But when it, did I Bleed Rock and Roll? Get November released? of 2011. Okay. And so then I thought, oh, I haven't done anything. I need to make a new record and then I look back and oh in 2012 I made a kids record and then last year I actually recorded the vocals for two full length records which are these weird quote unquote tribute records you know the, the accelerators in Holland completely re-recorded Fun in the Dark a groovy gooly record and I put vocals on that and then the copyrights completely re-recorded Reanimation Festival album and I completely put new vocals on that so there are these funny they're not they're not they're just co-opted mm-hmm. re-recordings it's fun is that is that what you're going to be working on now re-releasing well now in this year 2014 i am reissuing the entire actual groovy Gloom catalog the original recordings in chronological order beginning april 8th first three seven inches plus which is three studio recordings <laughs> that we did you know, it's studio means two microphones. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's great. It's the really, really early, you know, it will, it, it'd be like probably an 88, 89 lineup uh, doing Neil Diamond's Kentucky Woman, uh, Sonny Bono's Laugh at Me and Billy Bragg's A New England, you know, five or six years before the World Contact Day version. So it's fun and funny and, you know, it's cool. Kind of like how Van Halen did, you know, Kinks covers from their club days. 
And are you going to be later on? Are you going to be releasing the thing, the copyrights, and the the other? Yeah, yeah. The uh, the accelerator one is now completely mixed, as far as I know. I'm just I think I approve the final mix or whatever. Hear it. I'm, I I don't approve because not that I don't approve, <laughs> but it's like. These guys have changed the songs and done their own versions and have ideas. So it's like this is your project, you know. I'm the singer on it or whatever. So I'm letting them imagine the mixes and the arrangements and everything. So if you don't like it, you can always just listen to the old Goody Goody record. If you want something fun and fresh and different, like it's really fun. And you know, the copyrights just chopped solos and verses. You know, three minute songs are two minutes, and it's like. Ooh, like you know, there's no rule. It's rock and roll art. So it's almost like a, a hybrid of a true a tribute record and a cover record. It's just like you do your own thing. Or not? I'm sorry, not yeah. a tribute record, but a, like a cover record. But yeah, a reimagining. I a love re-imagining, this word. Yeah. I, I don't know where this word began, but as a Tim Burton <laughs> fan, you know, he reimagined Planet of the Apes and he mm-hmm. reimagined Willy Wonka and he reimagined Alice in Wonderland. It's like chop it up, mess it up, do what you want. Like. You're Tim, you're Tim Burton. You know, if I don't like it, I'll make my own or I'll watch the original. And that's what I encourage people to do. Rob Zombie did his with Halloween. Yeah, yeah. Do, do it. You have the original. and It's it, cool to have it, an original key player in it, though, too. Yeah. You know, with you doing the vocals. It's fun. And I, you know, and therefore I guess it gets my stamp of approval or whatever. But I don't, you know, it's like these guys are my friends. I love what they do. And, you know, to be invited, you know, love to make a record with copyrights so or the accelerators like yeah then I, and it's less work for me <laughs> not that i'm lazy but i'm always going and well and the fact that they're in the netherlands right you know and so you said that you're releasing the entire gooey ghoulies um you know discography are yeah you, are you releasing that on green door records yes and so you've revived the gooey ghoulies catalog as well as you've revived Green Door Records. Is yes. That, is that true? Yes, okay. indeed. And that label never really went away. It kind of slowed down. And, you know, as the Ghoulies had been not busy for seven years, it existed. But I also started a new label, Kepiland. And then now I can put out my solo records here and I can put out the Groovy Ghoulies stuff on Green Door where it was. And then I think it's super awesome. Very little oversight needed and a simple royalty system, which is where every independent label goes nuts. is paying royalties and having been a member slash victim of that society for many years, I want to do my best to be a fair and good team player. And, you know, hey, like every independent musician knows 10 bucks is 10 bucks or more or whatever. So let's try to, boom, I have things in place for like oversight and simplicity. So I'm really hoping that we all win. Well, the music industry is lucky to have you back in, back, <laughs> back in that chair, in my opinion. Well, um, you know, we just got started, but it's looking really good. I love my team. I love my helpers. I love the fact that the old ghoulies have all agreed to this situation, you know, and I think everything I do as an artist, as a maker of records, as a business person or whatever, you just try to do what you could do and want to be treated like it's the golden rule you know so let's see if we can't make it work <laughs> i guess that <laughs> i guess that begs the question with the resurfacing of the old ghoulies material is there any uh, possibility chance hope for anybody to see the groovy ghoulies on stage again you never say never but i mean it was great and it was fun but what i do now is completely as fun for me 
and you know many people say oh, i wish i could see this but i think if you what you get now is good too but i don't in no means want to diminish what the ruby green Saturday did but i'm equally as passionate about what i do now and i think if you come to a show you still get a ton of those songs and you still get some fun yeah, pretty good do you um do you remember the last groovy Gooly show um i think i do because i think it was this weekend of shows that was like the epoxies and the phenomenons and the teenage harlots or some some insanely oh, i think maybe not the epoxies maybe it was like phenomenons ghoulies teenage harlots or something it was like a weekend of shows so it's pretty memorable you know have a grain of nostalgia in your life but don't live in the past like there's so much to be done and so much to be created and you know if that entails a reunion of Ruby Ruby members in the future then let's celebrate it and make it the best show that ever happened and if it doesn't then whoever I'm playing with you know be the best show I've ever played because here we Would are. Would you mind kind of giving <laughs> us a little bit of a background on, on how the Gooby Goobies formed and maybe just a, a quick history of it all for the people that yeah. don't really know it? Yeah so basically you know what do you do? <laughs> well, how about, Where do you, you start? Know, how you just yeah. got into Sacramento music? There's stepping stones that you know like the fun one of the funniest things is little baby kepi like the first seven inch i got was the monster match i mean that's funny and ironic and hilarious because of where i ended up so that was a, a big touchstone then the next big thing would probably be getting like johnny cash live at san quentin in the third grade you know and like you know you get it for a boy named sue but you fall in love with the record the old 97 and the thing with me is like that's still one of my favorite songs i don't consider myself a trendy person <laughs> it's like you know <laughs> you, you, people you know and it's funny too because you know flash 20 years later you meet some kid in Safeway that's groovy ghoulies you were my favorite band in high school you know and I'm like cool and like I think well what happened you know where because I still listen to Iggy and I still listen to the Ramones and I still listen to the Cramps you know the you know how, how do you stop having a favorite you know and, and maybe your band breaks up or you know, I never made like the new country album or the 80s reggae album or something that really steered anyone too wrong. But you grow up and you change and I understand. I, I understand now that there's a, you know, there's a little breed of people, which is funny because you say this, you know, I bleed rock and roll. But there's some of us <laughs> have it so much in us that, you know, it's just in you. And it's just like for an artist, it's paint. For a motorcycle rider, it's oil or whatever. You you bleed something, you know, and like a mechanic bleeds oil. They're passionate about grease and fixing cars and making it purr. And so a musician bleeds rock and roll. And I, I now understand everybody's not like that. <laughs> when you're 12 years old and then you go on like with the story, discovering Elvis, the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Devo, Elvis Costello, the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the clash you know it's like bing 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 you know you have this thing and then you know then you're a kid that was already loving kiss and then you see the misfits and then you're like oh my god this is you know here i am drinking out of a misfit cup thank you very much but this was basically kiss meets the ramones which at one point was two of the biggest bands of my life so when i discovered the misfits kaboom you know but then there's like this element of violence you know and it's like a very violent guy so I like your music, but it doesn't completely speak to me because I don't, you know, I don't. It's not my goal to go out on Friday night and get drunk and hammer people's heads in with my fists or boots, you know. 
so I like the kind of like the more Joey Ramone, Peace and Love, you know, Rolling Stones, post pre pre Altamont, you know, <laughs> you know, post Altamont Stones are cool, but it's not, you know, like I'm kind of like obviously a pretty positive dude, and I haven't always been, but I'm at a place now where like I'm happy to be happy, you know, and and like honestly, who doesn't want to be happy who doesn't want to be in love who doesn't like freedom <laughs> you know <laughs> the terrorists but you know it's a pretty simple life and i think i've kind of figured out a big chunk of it so i'm cool like you know now i have balloons at my shows and if you think that's goofy then you don't have to come cool but the people that do come are happy i've made a wonderful batch of friends that i wouldn't trade for the world you know who understand me so i win uh, and then there was 12 albums along the way. Yeah, I was going <laughs> to say, so if you don't mind me asking you again. Yeah, I'm back to the question. Can you can you tell me about, you know, how you got into wanting to play music and, and maybe what? Did you do bands yeah. before Ghoulies? I had like, you know, it, it's it, my life is so funny. You, you know, it, it appears so cut and dry and there's a billion arteries. You, you know, know, I think if anybody ever said that your life was cut and dry, <laughs> they don't know you. And they don't because there's things that... There's always a thing in my life that seems super obvious. Like if you looked at Kepi and you'd go like, oh yeah, the Ramones and Chuck Berry and the Rolling Stones and some Motorhead. And... But, but yeah, but you know, where's the Rocky Erickson, the Daniel Johnston, the Jesus and Mary Chain, the Thermals, you know, 60s Garage, 80s New Wave, Goth, whatever, it's all there. And like, that's what's sad about, to me personally, someone that only listens to new country or hip hop or American Idol pop, like, go find something. It's not everyone's intent, and we're very busy, and we have Netflix and video games and things nowadays, so it's a different world. But yeah, there, there's definitely nuances. And people don't really search as much anymore, you know? I mean, going to the record store oh, yeah. and looking through records to find those one or two out of 500, compared to the fact that you can turn on Spotify, and you just be like, well, I want to listen to stuff that's kind of like this. Yeah. And then it, you know, and then the service just kind of puts you into the mode of like, okay, well, here's everything under that umbrella. Yeah. Good luck. You yeah. Know? And and yeah. sometimes you find really great stuff, but too, it's like the the proactive search, you know, that that like I found this, not this was given to me. Yeah, but I actually have people, you know, Koi Vic from the Haints, mm -hmm. probably Jazz Brown, definitely nowadays like Pets and Dog Party. Who there's so much music out there. So they like will listen to all these indie rock bands and then go here. Like I just was handed, you know, Ringo Death Star by Pets. I'm like, wow, yeah, it's the primitives. And then, you know, they don't know the primitives. Or someone will be like, do you know Frank Turner? I'm like, no, but I know Billy Bragg. And they don't know Billy Bragg. And it's like, that's just how the world is. There's now one billion artists out there. So we can't know it all. And there's a funny thing where like, you'll, you'll hear a, a satellite radio station and oh, this sounds like The Kinks, or it sounds like T-Rex. It's just a new band that sounds exactly like The Kinks or T-Rex. And is that a crime? I think not. It was like when I, heard, when I heard that Hive song where they, they literally lift up the, the, don't let me down, you know, but oh, the Hives are like, yeah. go right ahead. I, I called Andrew, I was like, look, I like the Hives, but you love the Hives. Is this, w w explain this to me. Yeah. <laughs> This homage, parody, accident. It's, it's all, and that's <laughs> rock and the, roll. It's all for you to judge. Yeah. Buy it or don't buy it. Listen to it or don't listen to it. You know, I, guess, I guess it just immediately made me think of that part in Cadillac Records where uh, Chuck Berry, played by Most Def, <laughs> is watching the Beach Boys on television going, 
well, I'm, I'm very glad that these boys could take my sound and, and be the gateway to rock and roll to <laughs> 70 billion kids, you know. When do I get paid for them using my sound to do it? And it's all intention and, you know, there's a stream of consciousness and then there's actually ripping off and our buddy right. Lemmy says, you know, we all take from each other. Absolutely. It's, it's, it's your intention. It's like, did you mean to do it or did you accidentally do it? And it's funny because as an A number one Chuck Berry fan, you know, he also admits to when he would see bands, he'd see a country band and be like, oh, I like that part. He'd see a jazz band. Oh, I like the way that swings. And he would, you know, right. you mishmash it, you make it your own, you know. And also there's, you know, is that da na 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 Is that Johnny Johnson's piano? Some say yes. I have a, a friend Quinn who does that, but he does it with a country guy. God, I wish I could remember his name now, though. But I mean, we will seriously just be driving down the freeway, and he'll hear a, a guitar lick of some kind. Of like, you hear that lick? Well, that's a so-and-so lick. Oh I yeah. The name I would know. It's the eternal question, you know. And my answer is, when you go to bed at night and put your head on the pillow, can you look yourself in the face and go, "Did I do a good day? Did I try to be original?" And blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. That's what it comes down to. So, so getting back to the question, to, to how we really started. Good lord. Yeah. So I had a high school band. Oh, you we, did. So we, yeah. And we, what did we play? But what we played, we played Tom Petty and the Rolling Stones and the Ramones. I mean, the same stuff I love today. What was your first band called? Uh, it had different names. I think the main name probably was like Magwheel and the Lugnuts. I think okay. my na- my neighbors like call it Magwheel and the Lugnuts, and he was a mechanic. You know, so like, yeah, that's funny, cool. You know, and. Other people tried to name it or whatever. and But I think that was the high school band. So after high school? After high school, yeah. Instantly, like, you know, semester of junior college and uh, I gotta go start a band, you know. And I lived in Sacramento and nothing was really going on. So I went to L.A. to start a band and I moved to L.A. Started a Groovy Goobies. It started in Roseville, you know, 1984. Moved to L.A. for five years. Moved back up here about 89 when the first album was coming out. Then momentum this is five years of just finding people but i made the first three seven inches during that time while i was basically living in la and you know i would come up here to visit in northern california and my buddy eric bianchi who was still a friend of mine to this day had you know a tascam four track and a, you know, a drum machine for making demos well, let's make a record you know and that was the thing i think you know i was just like i wanted to make a record i didn't have a band i didn't care so what's the lineup on the first few seven inches the, the first goes? three seven inches is like me on guitar and vocals mm-hmm. eric bianchi on bass i think i played maybe bass on a couple songs and then a drum machine oh, okay and a Tascam 4 track and you know that was the band quote yeah. unquote and we recorded you know three songs and made a record and it was fun and then you know, two years later we made two more you know <laughs> and, and that was all that was all done in LA no up, up, here, up here in Roseville oh okay this is the really funny part where I love the Ed Wood comparison because <laughs> like <laughs> and it's so funny and you, you you don't really know at the time that you that you're being Ed Wood but it's like, first of all, his apartment was probably a block or two from the city cemetery. So there's always like the cemetery figures into everything I've ever done. But, um, you know, we recorded the first record and then it's like, oh, okay. So this time we'll record, you know, seven songs instead of three and we'll make two records, you know, and that's 1988, right? Then you flash to like 2002 and you know i've been through several record labels and i'm getting ready to put the records out myself so it's like oh let's record two albums at once 
so we don't have to pay for setup and mixing twice, right? Very smart early on. Yeah. <laughs> early on, I was already in my 30s then. Of your career. I mean. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Early on, I figured this out <laughs> somehow. But by the time, you know, it rolled around to Ghost Stories and the Monster Club, you know, like a new studio album and a kind of re-recorded greatest hits thing. I was like negotiating with my friend, Mass Giorgini at Sonic Iguana Studio. And hey, can we record, you know, 24 songs? Then we only have to set up once and then you can mix them all same time like yeah sure and so at, at the peak of the ghoulies you know gigantic rock star budgets i negotiated you know two albums for, i negotiated a deal we went into the studio for a week and just busted them out mm -hmm. but you know and that's you don't have money or a limited budget so you, you know a lot of bands will write in the studio and they'll that's sit so in the weird. studio for a month and spend thousands upon thousands of dollars or they did and we would just almost the albums were pretty much written, sequenced, you know, I mean, pretty much everything was like, let's practice this and rehearse it and go in and bust it out. Right. And they're pretty good records. So we got, you know, so that's the first three seven inches busted out in Northern California while living in LA. And then I think I put together a band. There was a show that was like, it was just so rock and I had to be on it. And there was this club that Tom Petty sings about called the Zombie Zoo. Yeah. There was a show there and it was like, Haunted Garage, who were my friends, you know, probably something really, a big LA lineup, like Satan's Cheerleaders and Celebrity Skin or some, you know, really nice show. And I was like, oh man, you gotta let me open the show. He's like, okay. We didn't have a drummer. <laughs> and uh, Roy McDonald from Red Cross and the Muffs filled in and played the first like official LA big rock show that we played. And so there's little fun here. We're friends now, you know, I love that. 25 years later, you're still friends with the dude that, you know, came in and, you know, and then you end up touring with the Muffs and becoming friends and it's great. So that was the first three, seven inches. Then we, I had a band and then we, we recorded the first album up here. And this one, I can talk about the budget because it's absolutely hilarious. The first album, Appetite, or? Appetite for Adrenochrome was recorded in, in Harmonic studio which became the hangar later on okay. but it was in john bachigalupi's house mm -hmm. downtown sacramento and we did the album for 250 bucks <laughs> in two days wow and we tracked all the music in one day saturday you know we drove up from la friday night over there tracked the whole album on saturday did the vocals and the mix on sunday and drove home sunday night or whatever and it's hilarious and we had that record so rehearsed that a lot of people know this but a lot of people don't as you listen to it there's three clusters i think i think uh you know there's a cluster of three songs in a row a cluster of two songs in a row and then maybe on side two the first five songs on side two it's recorded live like the one song ends, click 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 the next one starts i mean there's not even i don't think there's even edits right there's actually like a five song live cluster and then we put all the vocals on it. Yeah. So it was an economy and you look back and, and this is where it's fun to talk about these things. It's like, oh, I absolutely forgot about this funny thing. So, yeah. So if there's 13 songs on that record, 10 of them were recorded in three takes. Right. You know, that's more than one, more than a take. <laughs> what year did you record that one? 89. Oh, okay. 1989. So then... Moved back to uh, Sacramento. And was that the same lineup? The Adrenochrome lineup is a live band that was uh, in the studio. Really funny. A, a guitar player named uh, John Rogers, a bass player named John Vetter, and a drummer named John Sosa. Okay. 
And then John Sosa quit and the live drummer became John something. <laughs> I could. It's like the Sex Pistols, the Johns. Yeah, yeah. So it was basically Kepi and three Johns. And one John quit and I got a new John. So that was pretty funny. And then I uh, moved back to Northern California. And then Roach joined the band. And then there's a drummer for the next 15 years. Okay. So born in the basement with Wendy, World Contact Day with Wendy, both recorded at Egg Studios in Seattle. Conrad Uno, like pretty legendary garage scene, you know, mm -hmm. Fastbacks and Head and Flop and Gas Huffer and Insane. Got to do that. You know, part of my career that I'm thankful for is the waves that I've surfed and that pre-grunge and even Seattle during the grunge scene always had a great punk rock scene. You know, the Fastbacks and Head who still sometimes play and who I still love and I'm still friends with. It's great that you can be friends with a band. I mean, I've known Head since 89. They were my first Seattle show and we're still friends and we're still playing shows together. That is magic friendship. Rock and roll. Oh, uh, yeah. And then signed to Lookout Records. When was that? 96. Ish. Did you seek them out or did they come to you? Well, here, this is more Magic Friends. So then you have your Seattle grunge scene and now we get to be part of the East Bay post Green Day explosion, which is great. I was already a fan and somewhat friend of the queers, smugglers, Fancy Division, High Fives, Mr. Key Experience. All those bands just went to look out because we have to sign these guys. And they did. Cool. You know, and there would be these shows at the Trocadero, you know, that would be like the queers and the smugglers and cub and the goons or something and then the next month you're playing with the mr t experience and the high fives and pansy division and the groovy goos or something you know so these really Lookout showcase after yeah Lookout but they, showcase. they weren't even like they weren't even like showcases i mean they were right but yeah. it was just friends it yeah was no competition everybody loved everybody but really like a sense of a family i remember we were in portland and this guy came up to me from like polygram right in a really little Hollywood moment. And he's like, hey, uh, you know, whatever, da, 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 polygram records, I'd like to talk to you. Or whatever. I'm like, no thanks. You know, and he's like, you don't even want to talk. I'm like, you know, dude, I'm I'm on the same label as the queers and the smugglers. Mm -hmm. I mean, those were my two favorite live bands in the world at the time. Like I'm completely happy where I am. You couldn't possibly make me happier. You know, and that's a pretty good place to be. Then, you know, look out, did a series of adventures. <laughs> they chose their path. But I survived that wave, and it was a great wave. And then, then Stardom Records, you know, so yeah, Lookout was, you go down the discography World Contact Day, Reanimation Festival, Fun in the Dark, Travels with My Amp, four pretty classic records, all with artwork by a really great artist named S. Britt, who mm -hmm. I still love and am friends with. And Lives really, in Portland, right? Uh, now, currently, like, Minneapolis area. Oh. Still out there amazing artist and really gave the Groovy Ghoulies like a look and a feel. The logo was from the first album. My friend Alex in LA did that logo and legendary, iconic through that whole thing. The funny, with the reissues, I'm reimagining the covers with new art by Tom Neely and a new logo. Again, if you don't like it, go listen to the old stuff. But, you know, it's like, <laughs> I want to breathe fresh air. I'm not a nostalgist. I'm not this guy like making new record covers to cash in. Part of it is we're on four different labels at least. Mm -hmm. So the components of the artwork and the masters are scattered across the planet. I mean, from California to the Netherlands. So where is everything? Yeah. Actually, the Groovy Ghoulies, for fun, re-recorded a World Contact Day in 2005 with Scampi or six. And when we went to like put it out, we couldn't find any of the components. <laughs> Did we scan the record? Nowadays, you could probably get a really super high definition scan. Yeah. But back then, scanners were kind of blotchy and didn't get anything suitable 
never came out before we split up. After Lookout onto Stardom Records in Europe and Springman Records, and then I ended up just putting the later stuff out myself on Green Door. After that, like uh, Freaks on Parade, and Ghost Stories, Monster Club, Very Alive, 99 Life, which came out posthumously. I was going to say, I still remember opening the Alive and Kicking, uh, sitting at work one day on my lunch break, and then seeing this centerfold spread of Sacramento's official, <laughs> the official band, band of the Sac- official band of Sacramento, the Groovy Ghoulies. Yeah. And I'm, and I'm walking around and I'm just kind of laughing and people are like, well, I'm like, these are my friends. This is awesome, you know? And not like a week later, it's like, by the way, <laughs> uh, we're, we're calling it a day. We're, we're closing the coffin, you know? Yeah, what do you do? Is it okay to ask about what happened? Well, basically, Roach and I split up. And when you're, you know, considered by a lot of your friends and fans as like the funnest band on the earth, you can't really go out and play rock shows split up. I think it would be false. I think it would be phony. I think it would be unfair to the fans. I think it would be unfair to the band psychologically. I mean, really, I really like do my best when I hit the stage every night to be, I definitely do be in the best place possible that I can. Sometimes you're more challenged. And that was, that was like 2002, right? That was 2006. Was the split six? Yeah. Oh, that was six. That was early, early seven. Yeah. Yeah. It just wouldn't be fair to anyone to like, hey, we're gonna break up, but we're gonna keep our band going, and then, you know, scrap. I've seen bands fight on stage. I don't like it. I'm a, you know, first and foremost, I'm a music fan, and I've played shows where the nerves in my arms wouldn't work, and I'm playing literally one-handed bass, but I know when I'm doing that, (laughs) that I'm giving, I am giving you the best possible performance that I can give you. This arm isn't working, I'm sorry, but I'm giving you everything each night, and I constantly try to So after the Ghoulies, what what are some of the things that you did? Because I remember- Six albums on Asian Man. Well, I'm saying, but I... Oh, Garagezilla? Garagezilla. Oh, how could you forget Garagezilla? I was just talking to him the other day. You were talking to him. What did he say? He's going to move into the garage at my my new place. But yeah, don't tell my my roommate. Okay. A couple of my uh, cryptozoological friends, you know, yeah. it's easy to house a Bigfoot because no one can see them anyway. <laughs> Garagezilla is bulkier. He's going to be hiding in the garage. Well, Garagezilla. Where did where did that idea come from? Uh, Actually, can you can you explain Garagezilla first for all the people that have no idea what we're talking about? Well, right now? First of all, how could you not know this greatest rock sensation? That, there's an ongoing project. You know, it's not the most active thing I work on, but it's called the Incredible Cryptozoological Entities. And Garagezilla is part of this, you know, band of misfit, rogue, superhero, monster rock and rollers, along with a bat and a chupacabra and a monkey and God knows what. Mm-hmm. And, a big, and a Bigfoot. Yeah. But uh, Garagezilla is probably yeah, the most famous. He's, you know, he's toured Europe. I've seen it. I saw him. I saw him destroy a city in, the, in, in Orangevale once. Yes. I think you've performed with him once or two times. So. Yeah, a couple yeah. times. Yeah. Rare, rare. Yeah, because, you know, that, that volume of destruction right. <laughs> cannot yeah. be done. Lots, <laughs> lots of insurance. So, yeah, it's a gigantic green uh, singing dinosaur in the vein of a Godzilla, you know, whatever. Garagezilla is the lizard king, the true lizard king. He made some songs. They never came out. Maybe one day there'll be a seven-inch on Asian Man or something. Yeah, I think it was. And then it was not long after those performances with you that I think that you had been doing it for a while. But the first time I, I saw you do an acoustic show, I believe, was 
up in like Placerville or something like that. It was it was an yeah. upstairs venue, and it was you made me break out of my I never do anything <laughs> improvisational, and you made me stand up on stage and shake an egg. Oh, cool! But, yeah, I think that place was called the Upstairs Gallery. Or something. I think so. <laughs> yeah, it was like you and Danny. Yeah, yeah. When the Ghoulies broke up, we had uh, the Ghoulies also did two albums uh, with augmented local musicians called the Haints. Mm-hmm. And there was some original stuff and uh, like Americana versions of Groovy Gooey songs that I quite enjoyed. Who was in that band? It was, uh, so it would be, you know, Roach and Scampi and I from the Groovy Ghoulies, uh, Corey Vick, who's currently in Arts and Leisure, uh, David Houston, producer and solo artist, Ted Angel from Mr. T Experience, and. Was Courtney in there? Eye, band? Yes. And Bobby Jordan from Mr. Okay. T Experience as well. Courtney was not in that band proper, but probably. Played tambourine and sang backups. It was a, it was just a crew of fun. Kind of where the hoot nanny kind of came from was from you guys, no? Almost. Yeah, we did punk rock hoot nannies at the West Capitol Bowl. Yeah. Back really fun times, and that was fun. got my dad to come out and sing. Really? Which, yeah. Never <laughs> happened in the history of my life. So a real treasure was uh, getting my dad on stage to sing some songs with us. He had had a country band, bar band, wedding band, you know, in the seventies and. And we never performed together until, like, yeah. Awesome. Wish I'd have seen that. Yeah, it was pretty magic. There might be a video or two floating around somewhere. I don't know. Maybe it'll show up. But it was super good. Memory. And so after the Haynes, you just kind of migrated into doing Kepi? What's going on now, which is the kind of Frank Turner, Chuck Dragon, Tim Berry thing, you know, and then Kevin Seconds from 7 Seconds and I tour relentlessly. <laughs> and you always get, oh, yeah, so you're doing that punk rock goes acoustic thing now. You know, now. And that kills me because, like, you know, Kevin had the true love. Kevin was touring solo in a car, like, in 2000, 2001. I mean, him in a car playing acoustic. And, you know, it just took eight years for, you know, uh, people do it. You know, but Kevin is really a pioneer and Mm -hmm. and just does not get the love uh, that he deserves. But that's also part of rock and roll. Uh, And I, too, had been playing solo shows since 2001, but really focused. What I did when... When I made recordings post Groovy Ghoulies, we had done the Haynes, we had done the Groovy Ghoulies, I intentionally put out two records on the exact same day. And one was an Americana record and one was a punk rock record. Mm. Thereby, you know, emancipating myself <laughs> from judgment. Like, is he a punk rocker? Is he a singer-songwriter? Who cares? He's a, he's a rock and roller, a musician, artist, and there's no rules. So then I'm completely free and can live this life I love the vein of Neil Young Jonathan Richmond or Johnny Thunders or whatever do what you want you know maybe I'll do the Moby thing who cares I don't care you know you don't have to buy it right and I like that I want to be an artist I like and so I've done a record with Vic from the Slackers who was a friend and a hero and then a rock record that I spent a month in the studio just building as I went by sentence then the next one was completely conceived rock album I lead rock and roll in a kids record. That's Kepi for kids? Kepi for kids. So six posthumous, you know, posthumous, and then chapters. <laughs> six chapters out of 18 or 20. So, you know, I've already created half of my previous body of work in the last five or six years. It's like one of those books that have part one, and there's seven chapters in it, and part two, and there's 13 chapters in part, you Kepi know. Kepi in the Bethly Hallows part six. <laughs> That was your grandma that told me to say that. <laughs> I should just do, yeah. 
I continue to bleed rock and roll. <laughs> I still bleed rock and roll. Bleeding rock and roll is what I do. Rock and roll blood forever. <laughs> rock and roll blood fest, rock and roll reanimation festival, rock blood contact day, blood in the basement. So now that we've got the 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 very quick timeline, Okepi, you know, are there any of those great stories that kind of stick out about shows that you, you know, you can't believe that happened or that you got to see? Well, I got to see Devo and they had their second album out. Berkeley Auditorium, and you know, and, it, and, and and like if you weren't, like I don't like to be like if you weren't there, blah blah blah. But no one really knows the impact that Devo had, and no one ever will. You can't watch it on a video, and, and even close, you know, if the Ramones were for mi- misfits and outcasts, you know, then Devo was even that more because they didn't wear leather jackets and jeans. You know, they they were, you know, fleshy pale guys in shorts you know <laughs> like wow yeah. it really you, that's punk rock you know artists and punks and weirdos and misfits and you know and to just be in this living art experiment crazy you know and, and you know and there's other bands like the residents and stuff i'm sure who were even more out there but i'm a fan also of you know concise melodic you know i'm not a, I'm not a fan of discordance you know i don't i don't need noise rock because the world is noisy, you know. So I, so I like nice. <laughs> I know a lot of people sometimes will fall into the mindset of, you know, like, oh, it was better back when, or you know, you'll never know because you weren't there, like you said. You yeah. Know? But you know, it's it's like, okay, you can't be there. You can only hear it secondhand. Yeah. I really am not a fan of nostalgia. I understand. And so for me to even say that about Devo makes me like, what, you know, I'm only saying it wasn't there you weren't there because I feel that that's like a fact, you know, sure. you had, you, it was an experience and, and, you know, and, and, and I would go to rock shows as a kid, you know, my brother would photograph rock shows and I did that for like two shows. And if you're behind the camera, you're missing the whole thing. Yeah. Sadly. And I appreciate the people that capture it. Just like I appreciate archivists that write down every song, but I'm, I'm not that it's a Buddhist thing, which I didn't know at the time, but I now know that you, be present in the moment you know so to see Devo then just was a pre-Buddhist moment that I didn't know what I was experiencing you're you're in it that's why kids go to the front that's why kids hang on the rail why are you in the pit you're, you know you can't even see the band they're they're in a vortex of energy what they are and so that's what that was and for me now to go like you know, describe the scene back then for the first part anyone listening maybe some people care but really probably don't like it's like you don't want to hear that I grew up in a little town without a bowling alley because because you have Netflix and video games and World of Warcraft and a car and a bus and a train and a plane and you have access to so much entertainment. Like who cares that this kid grew up in this little town and driving to Sacramento was like going to like New York, you know, to see Steve Bader be in a John Waters movie. Like it doesn't. I'm not saying it doesn't matter. It mattered then. It doesn't matter now. Just like your grandma would say, you didn't know if you didn't pass out to Frank Sinatra. You know, it matters to those people. And it matters that they jitterbugged or drove a horseless carriage across. You know, <laughs> like what was pioneering to us doesn't matter now. 
not saying it didn't matter then, but I, I do see your point. <laughs> but I mean, like, yeah, like for me personally, I mean, yeah, I think, I think on the grand scheme of it, I would completely agree with you. But I do think there is yeah. a percentage of people out there yeah. that, that like watching those yeah. rock and roll documentaries because well, even though it is a bit of nostalgia and even though it is looking back, it's it's getting to, to look through a window firsthand yeah. that, you know, you don't otherwise. I guess. Yeah. And concisely, you know, I can tell you some highlights like, yeah, my first punk rock show was the Dead Kennedy at a you know, VFW hall and standing on a chair in the very back, mm-hmm. you know, just going like, what is going on here? That's that's important, you know, but that took 10 seconds. <laughs> you know, I don't need to tell you the whole history of it. I, w- I went to a punk rock show and it was scary, you know, and so it was at the time, but you know, I don't think punk rock or anything is really scary anymore. And I don't want anyone to try to prove it to me by putting on a slipknot mask and masturbating on stage while you cut into your penis with a knife it's, it's not art to me i do also think it, at least me personally and this is why i guess i'm disagreeing with you yeah bit, is for you to say that it's not important i think to again i think it's those same people that it is kind of important because it, yeah. it gives perspective like i personally know what it was like to, to book a show make a flyer go out and flyer tell a kid that today i mean again it's like maybe they don't have that kind of perspective yeah a large margin but there are those people that love to hear that because they kind of adopt that old work ethic and or it at least for me listening to a lot of the stories you know like the secretions and the knockoffs like the way they used to do things Mm -hmm. it made me appreciate what i didn't have to deal with anymore you know so i I mean i guess i guess that's kind of how i'm approaching and i can yeah i can share you know funny stories and that's fine and i'm not saying it's not important i'm just saying that as the world changes things become less important to a lot of the experiencers there's a f- funny things are like, yeah, booking your first tour with a calling card, you know, and having a phone bill at the end of the month that was seven or eight hundred dollars, or sending out postcards from an email list or whatever to get postcards from a mailing list. Here's our tour and spending three hundred dollars on stamps. Mm-hmm. You know, those are funny, cute things, yeah. You know, but now you you have a phone and I'm on tour. Facebook send, you know, Instagram send, and I'm gonna book a hotel. Okay, hotels.com on my phone. You know, it's great. You know. But it's also, you, you, there's a little less of the Jack Kerouac, beat poet, blah, 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 you know? But a lot of that's romanticized anyway. You know, a lot of the big bands are on a bus, staying at the same hotel every night. But, um, yeah, you know, Dead Kennedys and Subhumans at the Crest and Club Minimal. Why, well, thanks Stuart Katz for Club Minimal, who gave me my first punk rock show in 1984 on generic punk night, $3, which really gives you a sense of value. You know, I've been booked on generic punk night but nonetheless, a foot in the door that ended up, you know, getting to play with 45 Grave. That's pretty cool, you know, and getting to see, you know, DOA, GDH bands that, yeah, you, again, like bands that you never forget. And I roadied for the Tales of Terror because I had a van. So driving them to San Francisco allowed me to see so many bit Circle Jerks with Chuck Biscuits, Anti Nowhere League, Red Cross with Janet Houston. Mike Ness with the beret and the eyeliner, you know, and I've always been a Social Distortion fan, and whatever he does, it's, you know, his is more like rock theater, you know, he's a Stones fan, so eyeliner's part of that, or whatever. If you write a good song, is it catchy? Cool. You know, that's my thing. Like, I don't, you know, call it punk rock, call it whatever, but if I like songs, and I remember shows with good songs, high energy, those were a lot of, a lot of highlights, you know. At the same time of my life, to know at the same time, I was a gigantic and remain a huge fan of like Bob Dylan and Neil Young. So I was, you know, the punk rocker at the Bob Dylan show. In my first Bob Dylan show, he was a Christian. Mm-hmm. 
I went to the Warfield and watched him play an hour of Christian music and end with like a Rolling Stone, you know? I saw Neil Young do Transformer with the, you know, vocoders and not even a band. So I saw some weird things by some legendary people and yeah. that's fun too. And I bought all my friends Led Zeppelin and Tom Petty records off them for a dollar because they were so punk, you know? And it's like, good songs don't go away. Tom Petty is today one of my all-time favorites. He was good then. You know, I bought his first album when it came out. Nobody knew, well, what is he? Is he New Wave? Is he punk? What, what you know, he's wearing a leather jacket. What, you know, was it what? It's funny to think back that like, you know, Tom Petty or Pat Benatar confused New Wave, you know, who cares? And I got to taste that. These stories are fun because they remind you of like, yeah, I, my friends invited me to drum for them on a tour. And I wasn't doing anything. I'm, I want to see the world, you know. So they bought a van for $300, you know, risk number one. And booked a tour to Iowa where one of the guy's grandma lived or whatever. And we never made it. You know, we never played a show beyond Sacramento. We were living in L.A. We drove here and we played what was called the Light Rail Inn, which was a club near the Light Rail. And, you know, and the van broke down and we fixed it. Missed the Reno show. The next show was Iowa, <laughs> you know and drove our $300 van to Green River, Wyoming, and it broke down again. That was it. You know, two guys hitchhiked back to Salt Lake and flew back to LA and rented a U-Haul to drive out to Green River, Wyoming to pick the other two guys up who were just sitting in the van for two days. That was my first tour. That's kind of romantic. It's funny and stupid. What and band was that? It was called Count Spatula. <laughs> <laughs> it was Rudge from the Groovy Ghoulies okay. and his friends, and they needed a drummer. And yeah. I was like, oh, you know, I want to go on tour. Now I can go on tour with Chicks Bigot, and they take, they take airplanes. And right. airplanes are pretty efficient, and they work most of the time. Yeah, most of the time. So that is why on future episodes of The Wolfman Meets, we're going to bring in Charles Albright, rock historian of Sacramento, and then get Jerry Perry and get Dennis Ute. Hey, these guys grew up in... Rancho Cordova. So Sacramento would be like New York and Rancho Cordova would be like Boston and Roseville would be like Richmond, Virginia. You know, we would converge on this town and come from 20 miles apart, completely different worlds. There was a scene before the Tales of Terror, you know, the Square Cools and all these other bands and they were all rancho bands. And, you know, I didn't know they even existed. I was listening to Devo and Elvis Costello and the Ramones. And so, yeah, like, thank you, Charles Albright. A Sacramento musician, if you're from far away, who is just collecting and archiving everything. You know, I think it's amazing. You know, I don't have the time and have all other things to do. But if someone wants to take on these challenges, I love it because they're creating a, some something historical. And see, that's a funny thing. There's two things I'm realizing about myself. And you do these interviews, and it's fun because you get to actually reflect on yourself. You, oh my God, I grew up or you know, matured at the Cattle Club slash Bojangles. You could do 10 episodes of this webcast with Jerry Perry. I'm so thankful. I met, you know, we played with Cub and Grant Lawrence from The Smugglers. Stayed in town to see Cub. He was from Vancouver, BC. And that's how I met The Smugglers was through him being at a Cub show. And so I made a friend for life, you know, and these little accidents. And then bands like Beck and cranberries playing at the you know at Bojangles and Cattle Club it's so funny like the offspring and no doubt used to come up twice a year you know and then those are funny things old Ironsides is a bar here in town where I have made three of the greatest friends in my entire life who I believe I'll be friends with till I die which is Chicks Bigot a band called Man Planet from Minneapolis and Dog Party I met them all at old Ironsides completely two of them I just stumbled upon literally stumbled upon 
And then, you know, Jerry Perry was like, you have to come to this band dog party. Okay, and I go. Every time you meet these bands, it's it's mutual admiration. It's like you fall in love with everything about them. Their songs, their personalities. It's so much more than rock and roll. It's the way you conduct yourself in society. It's intention. What you know? Are you really trying to make a scene? Are you really trying to make the world a better place with art, or you know, drink beer and, and party? And that's fine too. But it's really cool if you can make a friend far away or not. That was my favorite thing about going to shows when I was in high school. Was because you know you're at high school, you're dealing with every yeah. situation, every cliche, every personality, and then all of a sudden you're at a punk show and you're at least for me, terrified to talk to the people around you. Yeah. But then one guy standing next to you says, oh, you like that band? Because he sees a patch that you made probably earlier that day uh, that you safety pinned your your sweatshirt. Yeah. And then he's like, oh, yeah. okay, cool. And then the next weekend you see that same dude and he's like, hey, I made you this CD. Yeah. I honestly think you'll have to get, you know, again, Kevin Seconds in here for one of these. But I think they actually got a band member, like a really early drummer or something because the guy was wearing a Sex Pistols pin at the record store, you know? And then it's like, you talk to him, I'm not gonna talk to him, you know? The other thing about punk rock, it forced you, it, you know, these things teach you social skills, how to talk to a stranger, how to make eye contact, which is very lost on a lot of people these days. I'm but, still working on yeah, it. Yeah, yeah. But it, you know, it, it's a shelter and it's also a place to grow. And you know, even though scenes will always have hierarchies that judge you or think they're the boss of it, is a more, relaxed <laughs> you know environment to, to, to grow up and figure out who you are in the previous question there was something i wanted to address as far as like rock historians locally and people that archive and things you, you learn stuff as you get older and somewhere somebody said you can have anything you want but you can't have everything you want and you know at one point as i was more material and had a bigger record collection and all these toys and this and that like, one day i'm gonna have this pop culture museum you know, and I'm gonna have stuff. People are gonna come and they're gonna look at my Ramones collection and this and that, and it'll be great. And we'll all sit down and drink coffee. And it was a great idea. And somewhere at this point, I, at some point, I realized that you know you you have to choose. You can't be the most touring guy in the world and have a, a coffee house or a record store or a music archive. And I've come to the decision currently where I'm at now is that traveling is my number one passion to. You know, and I've gotten this nickname, the Rock and Roll Shark, and blah blah blah. But I really do love to be on the move, and it's not fear of missing out. It's like trying to live every moment of every day. And if you can do one day in Holland, and one day in Germany, and one day in New York, and one day in Modesto, then you know you you get to taste. It's like a smorgasbord of cultures, and to me, that's so exciting to have a croissant in France or whatever. It sounds silly, but it's like, they make the best. Cheesesteak in Philly. <laughs> a veggie or vegan cheesesteak in Philly is magical. And to see, you know, Benjamin Franklin's house that doesn't really exist, it's a frame. It's more experience than material for me now. So that's the path I'm currently on, which leads me to when we come to Sacramento, I don't see just Sacramento. I see a globe. It's not like, oh, our scene sucks or people are buying less records. It's like... People around the globe have more entertainment options. <laughs> and really what we do, we're entertainers. And to the detriment of our genre, there's a lot of bands that don't make the best part, in my opinion, or will take longer to set up their gear than to play their set. And these things would make an average quote unquote potential music fan disinterested. You know, who wants to sit in a bar and take six hours to see four bands and maybe two of the bands don't appeal to you? 
you know, personally, I'm not judging anyone. But, you know, so it's like what we used to do, we used to, it used to be a reason to hang out. But why do that when I can have you over to my house and we can order pizza and we can drink Mountain Dew and play World of Warcraft or Skyrim all night, smoke pot, do exactly what we want, you know? That's what a musician artist competes with. Sure. So that's my belief. It's not Sacramento, it's global. And the, you know, unlimited options. If you like music, you don't even, you know, you have a DJ. You know, in the 90s and 2000s, karaoke was already destroying. Why should I go see a band when I can be Bon Jovi? I don't need them. I can be Bon Jovi. I can live on a prayer. So it's absolutely true. And so why do I need to watch a three-chord punk band when I can be Bon Jovi? You compete with that. Do you have an opinion? I mean, I, I know you obviously use social media, but I mean, do you think that's kind of played a, a factor role in the, the evolution of kind of where things have gone? Positively and negatively, but it's just like alcohol or fatty foods. <laughs> you know, what are you going to do with it? Have a slice of pizza, eat all the pizza, drink a beer, drink a hundred beers, abuse this thing, abuse that thing. I think Facebook is one of the best things in the world. I, talked to them. I booked a show in Berlin last night at three in the morning, so I win. The other people are like, ooh, worst day ever, I stepped in cat poop, and I got my wisdom teeth taken out tomorrow, and here's a photograph of my scar on my flesh, and here's a dead cat, and here's a Russian dead dog, and here's a truck that crashed on the freeway. Create your environment. I, you know, if you got a Hitler mustache on in your photo and you think that's funny, you're unfriend. You know, if you want to post a picture of a dead cat hanging from a tree, unfriend. You create your environment. You create your universe. And, yeah, like, you know, I couldn't get a show one time in LA and my friend is like Kepi's coming to town everybody meet at this park in Riverside there's a big tank on the side of this pond like a World War II tank memorial meet at the tank at 3.30 right we get there there's 30 people there and some people have brought food for food not bombs and somebody brought flowers I got these flowers today and they're handing out flowers and we played in front of a tank and we all went to pizza afterwards like you can make a show you can make a show anyone can no reason you can have it in a park you can have it in pets put on a show um, they had, you know people have yard sales and they play at their own yard sale you're only limited by your creativity no rules and that's what you need to know i could barely used to walk into a club and find the sound guy or whatever and you know you have to get courage and you have to believe in yourself someone got dino and i a show we were touring in atlanta and someone got us a show and the owner, I guess, knew who I was and said, oh, yeah, Kepi, come come on out and play. You know, love to have you. And so, you know, I was walking in all happy-go-lucky, you know, and I walk in and the coffee the barista is there, you know, hey, I'm Kepi, I'm your entertainment for the night, you know, and he's like, so is everybody, it's open mic night or whatever. He like totally just like shot me down, like, Pow! and I was like, wow, okay, cool. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, I, I thought I was playing tonight. And he called, and the owner forgot to tell them that I was playing that night. You know, so, okay, well, you know, you play from 8 to 9, and then at 9 o'clock we'll have open mic. You just do the first set. Cool, thanks, you know, blah, blah, blah. It worked out great. It was funny, you know, like, it's good to be humbled and things, you know. I was just trying to be friendly, and what do you say, you know, when you walk into a place, you know? I'm your entertainment, hey, you know. But that night I met the Wild. I don't know if you know the Wild, but they are, like, perfect cross between, like, the Queers and Andrew Jackson Jihad. It's, like, semi-acoustic pop-punk. But are your songs good? Yes. Are you friendly? Yes. Okay, you're my friend. I love you. And I met the Wild that night, and they were like, there. It's open mic night. You guys should play, you know. Our drummer's not here. Play acoustic. And they played acoustic, and I made a, I, And now I have a friend. So you just try to give out good energy. 
And if somebody wants to be a jerk to you, then they can. And they're just, you know, they lose. Ooh, too cool for school. Yeah, a lot, a lot like of times. Like you at the Frank Turner show. <laughs> I, I know you cool guys. You guys are all cool in the back. Yeah. Trippin' balls, Sacramento. <laughs> the night that I, I heard you you say trippin' balls, I never thought I'd hear <laughs> that phrase. <laughs> trippin' balls, I owe that one to the Beastie Boys. You know, did I steal it from them or did they influence me? <laughs> I acquired the phrase trippin' balls from the Beastie Boys. It was a Tarantino homage. Okay, I give thanks to the Beastie Boys for that. You know, now is the time to like, how do you really change the system, you know? And honestly, to me, if you ask me, vote with your dollar. You don't, you don't buy gigantic. You don't shop at the world's biggest box store. You don't shop at the world's biggest fast food chain. You don't buy tobacco from giant tobacco companies that you were paying to kill you. You don't buy the biggest shoe that the million-dollar athletes are wearing. Like that, those are things that I incorporate into my own life. And I say, if everyone did that, we'd be better off. And am I building community? I'm building capital. You know, and it, you you do what you want. It's so easy to just give up. But if you really want to be punk, you'll think about how you can contribute to society, your society, not the one perceived, or a you know, or the world. Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs> so moving on into the the land of Torin, what are what are some of the most memorable crazy moments? That's one of- <laughs> crazy moments. To play with David Johansson it was a dream. Basically, I bought a plane ticket for a show I wasn't even confirmed on. You give the universe face that this is going to happen. I was like, I'm just going to buy this plane ticket, and if I don't get the show, then go to New York and see David Johansson. I ended up getting the show and playing with Tommy Stinson and all this stuff. It's magic. And then, yeah, those are things like, oh, yeah, that was magic. I mean, have there been those, have, have there been those unbelievable moments even for you, though? Playing with Chuck Berry is, you know. How did that come about? You, you, it's funny. You, you don't. You may not know that you're manifesting it, but you may be slowly on your way. Basically, I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan. I started touring. I started playing St. Louis. Then, hey, I'm in Chuck Berry's town. Let's do a Chuck Berry cover. Started playing. A, every time we would play St. Louis, we'd play a Chuck Berry song. And then I was like, you know, next time we come, we're gonna make t-shirts. And then I was like, okay, well, Chuck Berry will sue me if I make a t-shirt. So I'm gonna make 50 t-shirts and just give them out. So we, we made this t-shirt and it had Chuck Berry's face on it and it said the, the Gooley Family Chuck Berry Appreciation Society or something. And I screen printed like 50 of them and sent them to St. Louis and we played a show and we threw these shirts out, you know, it's like, we love Chuck Berry. It's like word got back to the people that book him. Would you, would you guys like to open for Chuck Berry? Of course, you know, give us a date and we'll book our, I booked the whole U.S. tour around, the, you know, October 15th, you know, 2005 or whatever it was. They gave us this date that ended up being, you know, two days before Chuck's 77th birthday. And this is where the magic just kicks in. So I book a tour around Chuck Berry's show. We get there and we didn't know it was his birthday that that week. And the first two rows are lined up for his family. And we get to meet him and take photos. And lo and behold, you know, who who shows up but, you know, Johnny Johnson, piano player, uh, uh, you know, of the original records. They hadn't spoken in like 10 years. He's going to come out and super jam at the end. And they do like three songs. And Chuck is like, I can't wait. I got a guest. And he, you know, kind of <laughs> retires his piano player for the night and brings out Johnny Johnson. And the next thing you know, they're playing Wee Wee Hours. And it's like, you can't put a price on that. That's, I'm a millionaire right there. I'm a millionaire. And, you know, and that happens. My Mount Rushmore. My Mount Rushmore is like, you know, my punk rock Mount Rushmore is like Joey Ramone, David Johansson, Lux Interior, you know, Iggy Pop or something like that. I've got to meet them all. It's like, 
is meeting stars important? <laughs> Some people might say, who cares? It's just a dude, whatever. But it's a dude that like, that, you know, you see these t-shirts that say like the Ramones saved my life. Like that really happens. I don't mean to necessarily <laughs> put people into a celebrity context. Cause I, I you know, I, I kind of have, have a tendency to do that too. You know, like when I meet people that will tell me that they met Joe Strummer, yeah. or they met Joey Ramone, or they met Lemmy. I get excited, but it, I love that aspect of music yeah. because you know, me and one other person it could literally have nothing in common, but for some reason we, we both love Motorhead. It's just, I've spent so yeah, many yeah. hours listening yeah. oh, to yeah. that person singing to me or saving my life or getting me through a breakup or whatever. That's what, what, what it means to me, you know? It's like, yeah. because for the same reason why punk rock has always made me feel like, you know, we're all connected in some way and we all need each other in some way. Yeah. It's, it's cool when there's those people that seem you know, so out of reach when you hear those stories, they're not. But I guess that's why I like hearing those stories. And again, it's like Joey Ramone, he's gone, you know? So to hear somebody else's firsthand account. Yeah, it, it, it is a something that we pass on. And, it, you know, some people can be jaded and, oh, you hero worship and all this stuff. But it's not, it's what I've figured out is that you, you know, when you're a youth or something and you have a hero, you do live vicariously through them. When you're, you know, 12 or 14 years old and you see the Ramones in Rock and Roll High School, wow, that's the best thing ever. And then, you know, hopefully somewhere along your path, they become from, you know, living vicariously through you to someone you respect, to someone who influences your craft or your art. So they're like, you know, they're, they're our mentors and we're like journeymen. And then we learn our craft. And then, and then what is a problem nowadays, we go off on our adventure. and. A problem with many bands I find nowadays is they just try to emulate the mentor. But the mentor teaches you to build a chair, and and then you make your own chair. You don't you don't make their chair. You know you use mahogany instead of oak, and you carve squares instead of circles or whatever. You you make it your own. That's what rock and roll is. You're you're making a, we're craft people. We're artists. It gets lost. Joey Ramone with his you know wonderful red glasses who are covering up an eye problem, or you know Iggy Pop who can. 66 years old running around on a stage shirtless with scraggly hair and a broken ankle and yet it's still like on Mount Olympus these people you know for certain people these are people we live through that now influence us if we're living the correct life now we're on our own adventure we should use that we should thank them when we get to meet them so that's where I think and and so meeting artists is important it doesn't have to be hero worship if, it, if it's something that you know uh, satisfies you at the end of the day Cool. I think it's a fine line, you know, and it's definitely one that I try not to cross. You know, I think it is more appreciative, you know, than, than hero worship. One of my all-time super greatest heroes is Joe Strummer, and you know, and when you hear stories, he really he figured it out, you know, before he expired, which is great. If we can all figure it out, we win. The other thing that I would like to relate from meeting every one of these people is they were kind. Absolutely. Can you can you just because uh, it's a story that I think I've told many of people. So, uh, a lot of people, you know, that I haven't, at least we can just take care of it now. Can, can you tell the Clash at Memorial Auditorium story? Yeah, shortly. <laughs> but uh, it was 1983. It was. <laughs> do you know? Do you have the flyer? I see Joe Strummer. You know, and the, the other thing uh, before I tell the story is, is how great that, uh, you know, that our heroes, Joe Strummer, whatever, you know, he he he's busy sneaking into the Johnny Cash recording session so he can see Johnny Cash record. It's a, it's a chain of events. We Absolutely. All, it's a mutual admiration society. And so, you know, it's fun to hear Tom Petty and Nick Cave and Joe Strummer geek out on Johnny Cash. We all have a hero. Um, I went to see The Clash the night before they opened for The Who. High school kid. 
basically figured out a way to climb into the orchestra pit where the press was and, and you know, got to be front row for the clash, which was a big, big deal for me then. And, uh, you know, and the security guy is like, hey, I saw what you did. Stay there and behave and you can stay for the show. And I'm like, thank you so much. My friends and I behaved and then at the very end I misbehaved. <laughs> and I knew it was encore time and I climbed on stage and I hugged Joe Strummer and got kicked out. I was not the least bit sorry. Did, uh, did, was there any reaction? Like, did you... Well, the funny story I think later was I went to the Burger King where you hang out after high school back then and, you know, and then one of the Burger King kids was like, I see you on stage with the Clash. <laughs> I was like, yes. <laughs> That's, you know, kind of it, but it was enough. You know? I guess I was going to say, did you hug, did, did he like give you oh, a yeah, they had like, the, the fuck, you know? They, you know, I, who cares? You know, oh, they pried they pride me off of him and threw me. You, know? you were talking about eye contact, so I guess I was just wondering yeah. if you, if you oh, made eye contact. I don't, I don't know if we had a moment, <laughs> you know. <laughs> yeah, it's probably, it's fucking. I mean, you had a moment. Get but, this you know. punter off me now. I've got a rock show to do. Child, go on and write your little zombie and UFO songs. On your way. Pack it in, Kepi. <laughs> oh man. Okay. All right. On to the on to the next one then. Another favorite of mine. Can you uh, can you tell or explain the backstory of the Tommy Ramon pizza? Oh, that's just a joke on Haywire. Um, but you know, you know, I don't know the date of the Clash song, but I know that on May fifteenth <laughs> of two thousand and seven, I became the inheritor of a Tommy Ramon pizza. This is um, this is one of those jokes that went too far. I, I uh. I ended up getting to play an acoustic show with Uncle Monk, which is Tommy Ramone's bluegrass project with his girlfriend. And he was just charming and awesome. Everybody met him and everybody had, he, he must have signed at least three copies. There's probably 35, 40 people at the show. And he signed at least three vinyl copies of Leave Home and was just absolutely a gentleman. And Danny Secretion, a local musician, was at the show. And we were goofing because there was like a pizza backstage and we were doing the, you know, Riff Randall from Rock and Roll High School. You know, I'm going to save this forever kind of thing. And I took the label uh, off the pizza, and ripped it off the box and stuffed it in Danny's record and was like, you know, here you go. You taught me Ramon's pizza when we were teenage Ramon fans. And then later, Tommy went off to the hotel or whatever, and his pizza was still backstage, and there was like some slices there. And I have a friend in LA. I have some friends who are crazy, crazy Ramon fans. And so I was like, oh, I'm gonna you know, take these pieces of pizza and I'm gonna dip them in plastic. What's that? You know, they make like scorpion paperweights out of, you know, resin. Oh, okay, yeah. Polymer resin, resin polymer let's resin, say. Yeah. And I was going to do that and make my friends like, you know, Ramon pizza paperweights or belt buckles. <laughs> and of course, I'm a pretty busy guy and I don't have time for this. Um, so I just stuck them in my fridge in my apartment. And I had an apartment that was so small, literally nine feet by 11 feet, that I never cooked in because if you cooked, everything you wore would smell like garlic or curry or whatever you ate. So had a fridge I wasn't using and this pizza sat in this apartment for five years and then my apartment flooded <laughs> and I went to move and I was like I got my pizza and I it, I moved it into the fridge of my new house where it's been for two and a half years and uh yeah last year I took a photo of it my pizza had its sixth birthday on May 15th 2013 <laughs> and yeah now I'm getting ready to move and I'm like, hmm, do I how do I get my Tommy Ramon pizza? <laughs> and really, like, I could probably part with it, but, like, now that, you know, 
teeth and I have a bond. We have a bond. It's a part. It's your. It is. It is officially your dog. I don't have a pet. Much. I don't have a plant. You have a and pizza. yeah, and it's crazy because it never molded. <laughs> <laughs> and you, we'll put the photo up with the podcast. Maybe right. you know you get a little profile picture mm-hmm. with a podcast. Yeah. Maybe we'll put Probably the. Remote. We'll put yeah. It, it has a birthday hat. It says you are six today from last year's birthday party. Okay. Maybe that will be my uh, little profile photo on my podcast. And you still have it. Yeah. Another story that I was uh, a part of the reunion portion of. Can you tell the story of how you ended up in a Tom Petty music video? <laughs> I had long hair. That's true. And I was working in a record store, and someone said, "Hey, they need long hair guys for a Tom Petty video." I said, okay. I went there you go you can find me in free falling I'm not gonna tell you you email me and I'll tell you where I am if you can't find me there's there's a couple times it yeah two or three peaks it took me a couple times and I got to meet Julian Temple who's director of the Rock and Roll Swindle and we talked about the Rolling Stones and he was everybody I guess if you can make rock videos or you can be Tom Petty you know why are you gonna be a grumpy jerk you know you got a really good job yeah. Yeah, it was fun. That night, Tom Petty and Julian Temple went and saw the Rolling Stones together, so they have a good life. They're doing fine. I always meant to ask you, how did, how did the Misfits show happen? Did you did you get asked to do that, or did you kind of actively work? When we played with the Misfits? At the Crest Theater. I think we were actually offered the show. Okay, because it was originally you guys, Fear, and the Misfits, and Fear had to cancel for whatever reason. Okay. And I, I remember just thinking that it was so cool, because at that time, yeah. you know, it was just like, wow. And Gooby Ghoulies are opening for the Misfits. Yeah, it was fun. No, there's, you know, that's the thing is like, I, I love this. You know, later on, you know, years later, you know, that was like a Michael Graves Misfits show, and now I've played with him, you know, Boothick in a club in Brooklyn, and Marky Ramone shows up, and you know, there's, there's just fun things now. You know, again, the people that were your heroes are now your peers. I mean, you. You try to be a good songwriter and you try to tour and you really succeed sometimes and it's fun. I tour now with uh, this band called Dog Party from Sacramento and you know, we were touring Europe two years ago and Lucy the drummer and I, you know, still big Ramon fans or whatever, our tour ended July 3rd and they're like, you stay till July 5th, you can open for CJ Ramon, you know. Lucy turned 14 in Italy on that tour and was opening for CJ Ramon. It's funny. It, could a 14-year-old Kepi have opened for a Ramon? I would be probably pretty nervous, you know. Nowadays, it's my job. That time, I probably couldn't. The rock and roll magic. Different adventures, yeah. And everyone has their own magic. Being in New York, some of the things I love the most about my life is travel and food. You know, not a foodie, but like just when you get to New York, there's Dunkin' Donuts coffee and a pretzel. And when you get, like you said, like the... Philly cheesesteak or the beignets in New Orleans, you know, something, you know, that you, you, you look forward to these. So if, if you play a show to 10 people or you make 50 bucks or whatever, it's like you're in, you're, you're seeing your country or your planet, you're having a culture. That's really cool. You know, whether it's the Empire State Building or the Falls or some goofy roadside attraction, those are treasures too. Like, the, just as important to me. Like, you know, I've been my breath taken away by Niagara Falls or the Grand Canyon. Getting to see America is a pretty great deal. Have you played all 50 states? I have played 48. Mm, what's I left? I have been to 49. I have not been to Alaska or played it. I've been to Hawaii. And thanks to you, I got state 48. 
North Argo. Dakota. Dakota. Yeah. Awesome. It's fun to have things. You know, once I get Alaska and Hawaii, then I'll probably go like, okay, Puerto Rico. Go I was going to say, can I come with you to Alaska and Hawaii? Can I be there for those? You know, I do have a pretty great life. I think it would be funny to make like this little movie. I've seen a lot of documentaries where it ends with someone dying or overdosing or some crazy thing. And I think it'd be fun to make a movie. I wanted my 50th state to end up being North Dakota because like Alaska and Hawaii are pretty romantic and eventful and stuff. And I thought it'd be really cool if state 50 was North Dakota and you played your, you know, I did all 50 states and then you just get in the van and drive away. It's like, you know, so there's the end of that chapter. 50 states is a chapter or whatever, you know, it's like, what next? And you know, it's like for 10 years, people said, I'm gonna do a legally tribute album. You know, for 10 years people said that. Then the year we broke up, two came out. <laughs> you know, you you don't get to guess when this stuff happens. You can't make someone like you or I have projects that are con you know, it's a shuffling of priorities and stuff and something funny will happen, you know. I look forward to it. <laughs> yeah, and maybe you'll be there. Maybe see get Hooper to make a movie. No, I think we should do one summer, one chunk of time. And yes, I'll learn every single song you've ever <laughs> written if I can be a part of it. And you could make a documentary out of it, but you you could call it like Kepi Does 50 or something like that. And, oh. the, and the documentary can literally be you playing every state and then culminating yeah. in, in Alaska. Yeah. And I, make a tour where it's like 50 days, yeah. know, 50 states in 50 days. It's a dream. It's a, Actually, it's something I literally proposed. And I think, I think Rise Against, somebody has done a 50 state tour, but 50 states in 50 days was my dream. Yeah, we should do it. I'll yeah. help you book it. What are some of your favorite things to do on the road? Do you have any little traditions or games? I used to go toy shopping and yeah. stuff, as you know, and then I yeah. ended up with enough toys. <laughs> <laughs> when your house is full, you're good. Yeah. And I'm glad that I realized that. Like, I, you know, I could be a hoarder. But, uh, you know, I get to be crazy. I did a first solo U.S. tour last year. First ever, just me and the van, you know. And uh, I drove a pumpkin across the U.S. and took a picture of it in every state, you know. And I, uh, I listened to the exact same Dinosaur Junior album for 12 hours in a row. You know, you can't do that with friends on tour. You, you know, for God's sake, turn it off again. I listened to that Dinosaur Junior. If I played a thousand hours of music that tour, six to eight hundred of it was one Dinosaur Junior record. Farm, and so that's cool. <laughs> And it seems like you're a crazy guy, but like you're driving, you know, you you love to tour. You get the desert or the mountains and you just, yeah, you go into a place and the, and the music's going and the, the Groovy Ghoulies had certain records that like were in our van always. Like driving from here to Salt Lake was Jonathan Richmond, Jonathan Goes Country. And you know, the desert was always like Johnny Cash, Tom Petty, Neil Younger. And I always I had a tradition of when I, you enter New York through a tunnel, you you would listen to New York, you know, you would play the Ramones or Johnny Thunders or the New York Bells. So there was we definitely had traditions in the Billy Billies that were really fun that like still endure somewhat in, in the van. Do you listen to the radio on tour still? Or ever? Uh in my own van here in town, I listen to Coast to Coast at night. I used to listen to it on tour, but trying to find a station when you're driving all night and then keep it, it, it's on like satellite radio now, but I don't have satellite. I CDs still, you know, and they're easy. And again, from the Dinosaur Junior story, you know, I go around and around. I don't think people listen to whole albums anymore. They listen to playlists. And, you know, 
that's where we live now. Yeah. That's the world. I'm still an album guy. Me too. I'm a CD guy. And people, boo, 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 boo. but they're fun. They sound great. It's you know, I the vinyl. I love the vinyl they're comeback. <laughs> they're These discs are compact. <laughs> but yeah, and you download an MP3. It. I don't care. Listen to your vinyl. It sounds better. You say. I believe you. I believe you. Vinyl sounds so much warm. So warm. <laughs> warmest, warmest format. Do you have a personal roadmap of, of favorite things that you always remember and hope to go back to, you know, like if you were to book a tour based on like Voodoo Donuts, for example, yeah. you know, like every time yeah. you go there, you go there and you post something from there almost every time. Yeah. Uh, you know, do you have other spots along your, your roadmap? Actually, Voodoo Donuts has been surpassed in Portland. Yeah. This, I'm not going to line up two blocks for a donut. Although I have to tell you that employee of Voodoo Donuts got Dog Party and I a box of donuts for our van last tour at Summer Bummer. So thank you very much because we got to bump the line. I don't want to play Rockstar, but I'm not going to wait two hours for your donut anyway. So thank you. Portland is Powell's Books. I am now at the point where the bookstore is more exciting than the record store. That I'm is a crazy old man. It's my my favorite bookstore in the world. And if I'm, you're in Portland for one hour, Powell's Books is Absolutely. Uh, you're in Portland for a week, Powell's Books. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stumptown Coffee is pretty good. When I think of a restaurant, I actually like I go out of my way to go to the town of Portsmouth, New Hampshire, at least once a year, twice a year if I can. And they have this little delicious trifecta of being a little New England harbor town. They have the world's greatest grilled cheese sandwich at the Friendly Toast. And they have a record store called Bull Moose Music, which is like kind of like a dimple records. It's like videos, DVDs, CDs, vinyl, everything's crammed at affordable prices and all in a little New England atmosphere. And if you go in the summer, there's no snow. I love it. Portsmouth, New Hampshire is one of my favorite places. Teenage Harlots was a band that we both used to play with. They actually made a shirt. Did you ever see their tour shirt that was restaurants along the way? They made a little, a, this is a genius idea that, you know, feel free to rip it off because you can put on your own favorite restaurants and share. But the Teenage Harlots pioneered a t-shirt uh, and instead of tour dates, it had their favorite restaurants on it. And that, that's beautiful and clever and original. And that's what made the team great. Probably got them a couple free meals, too, cross-promotion. There was a place <laughs> in uh, Minneapolis called oh, Sunny Side Up. And they had this, like, breakfast that was, like, one piece of uh, French toast, one egg, one toast, one hash browns, one this. And they closed. And, like, now you go to Minneapolis. Where do I eat? In Minneapolis now, you look forward to the Triple Rock, which is owned by the Dillinger Four. And they have a vegan meatloaf that comes with mashed potatoes and the peas and corn. And so you can have, which is my personal philosophy, you can have Thanksgiving any day of the week. You know, I like to think that every day is Christmas or your birthday or Halloween or whatever. So every time you go to the Triple Rock, it's Thanksgiving, you get this delicious vegan meatloaf. Kevin Sackett and I, you know, Thanksgiving's coming, you know, something you look forward to. The first Dunkin' Donuts when you get out of California, which is coming our way next year. Waffle House. You know, people hate Waffle House, but like, we don't have them, so they're romantic and they're fun. And Jimmy John's. Jimmy John. That was Scampy, the Groovy Gooey Drummers. Jimmy John's. Oh, my God. And, so and now, <laughs> Joe Queer will eat Jimmy John's every day. You know, I'll eat pizza or Mexican food every day. I love it. Food and Fargo has the passage to India. It's funny when you can remember the name of your restaurant in North Dakota. It is. Exactly. Kevin Second said, I count down the days till we get the vegan meatloaf at the Triple Rock. <laughs> Three days to Minneapolis. Two days to Minneapolis. 
it was off the menu for a while. We got there. And then you just give thanks for the times you had, you know? Yeah. Have you had any crazy experiences? I mean, I guess as far as fans, you know, talking to you and about changing their lives or getting them through crazy things. I get hugs and thank yous and I'm very grateful for it. Um, one of the most magical, fun things I've ever seen in my life was a tour with Andrew Jackson Jihad. They, they have been very good to me and understand me. A couple years in a row, we, they live in Phoenix, and so in January, we'd do little 10 days up to, you know, Seattle and back for a few years. So we did that. And I remember one tour started, like, you know, New Year's Day in San Diego. It was, some, it was actually, I can tell you, it was New Year's Day 2010, because that was actually the day that I declared myself the independent nation of Kepi Land. <laughs> Okay. Uh, you know, and no war, no taxes, everyone gets along, and you know, now we're going into year four of Kepiland, so that's good. I'm an official, I've been an official citizen for a while. Excellent. Welcome, and you're doing great. Good. We, we've not been at war. Good. Um, but we pulled in, we're loading into Shea Cafe in San Diego. This is like one of these things you never forget. These two kids just ran up to Sean and Ben with these Build-A-Bears. They went to the Build-A-Bear shop, and they built and just shoved it in their hands. And gave him hugs and left me like, oh, that is everything. And those guys understand their fans and their fans understand them. And that's the relationship you want. That's You see that with the Bouncing Souls. You talk about change and who, you know, Billy Bragg is criminally underrated on the planet. He is a guy with a message, good songs, love, every single ingredient should be like a Buddha or something. You know, he cares about people like a Woody Guthrie and why he's not getting is like a mystery. Like, you know, again, everything is done with care and love and stuff. And probably you love marketing. I don't know. But, but, you know, you talk about, you know, if you want an example of how to live, you want to be a musician that changes lives, look, look at Billy Bragg. <laughs> and that's why I say listen to Billy Bragg now. He's here. I, I, you know, not that I don't love the love that uh, Lou Reed or Pete Seeger gets, but I love him today. Go listen to some Chuck Berry, some some Motorhead, post that you love him on your Facebook page, whatever. Like, tell him today. Oh, Bob Dylan. You know, I mean, crazy old dude, but he has changed the world for all of us. Absolutely. I don't know if anyone, Chuck Berry, has done more culture change than anybody. No. Are those the things that move you? Bob Dylan. Types of people that are well, first buy a Ford truck because they made it work. And then <laughs> tell Bob Dylan that you have I was going to ask you <laughs> if you saw that or not. I did. <laughs> that was, that was kind of like, oh. <laughs> it's funny. Like, Iggy Pop needs the money. Yeah. I don't know if Bob Dylan needs the money. It I was, think it was, not. It was kind of, it was a little weird. And that's what, again, I am completely content with anybody doing whatever they want to do. But. But the thing that I love most about punk rock is that I am 30, I have some age <laughs> of life, and I still can look at Bob Dylan on the television and be like, I'm fucking mad at you because you're in a car commercial. You know what I mean? But I love you because you look like Michael Jackson. <laughs> it's like Bob Dylan was done paying his dues 50 years ago. He paid his dues in 1964. He can do whatever he wants. We don't have to agree with it. Absolutely. We don't have to buy a Ford truck. Thank you. Because he did. He is a dude that went through so much that we'll never, ever, ever, ever. Yeah. Racism, political stuff, endless 
freedoms that we have now, even though we question certain freedoms, those guys made a dent. There's <laughs> nothing else they made a dent and gave a lot of people hope. They say that the best artists created three levels. You know, something for the masses, you know, something for the mediums and a little snickerdoodle right. for the specialists. I hadn't been to a movie in I don't know how long and I went and saw Inside Llewyn Davis. Oh my God. And, uh, you know. Amazing. Yeah, it's like, it's the last day, the last show at the Tower Theater. I got to see this on the big screen. I regret missing True Grit on the big screen. What a great, you know, we don't get to choose the generation we're born into. I know, I know Llewyn Davis is, I know them. There were so many subtle parts in that movie that I was like, I don't know if it's strictly a musician thing is going to get this, but I, I feel like there were certain moments that only artists are going to get. And I thought that was great. I like when I can watch a movie and I feel like there's something that's kind of under the radar because it makes yeah. me feel a little special. Yeah. I'm like, oh, that's there for, for us, you know? And <laughs> yes. Because again, it's like this is on the mass yeah. scale. So to see something, oh, yeah. you know, whether it be a, fucking, well, that's... A, a poster in the background or a sticker on a skateboard or whatever, I always yeah. like those little things that I'm like, okay, you know what? Somebody said, I'm going to put this in here and yeah. see who can notice yeah. it. Sadly, that's about as independent as films get these days, yeah. the Coen brothers. There was a movie called Vanilla Sky, and they, there was a really little cute scene where they were walking down Greenwich Village, and they reenacted Free Wheeling Bob Dylan cover. That's so cute. That's so clever. They snuck that in. And then at the end, like, he has this flashback, and they show the record cover. Like, they just hit you over the head with this thing that could have been a really beautiful moment for a music fan. And it was like, bonk. Okay, well, there's the one redeeming thing in that film or whatever. Did you see the CBGB's movie? I don't see those movies. I get to play CBGB's and I get thanks for that. Um, did you get to play it just once? Uh, I played a full show there with the Groovy Ghoulies. I sang there with the Smugglers. I got to have an acoustic and an art show with Kevin Sanders in the gallery. Who did the Groovy Ghoulies play with? It was one of the best shows ever. It was, uh, it really, of course. it was sold out. It was the Epoxies, the Groovy Ghoulies, the Apers, and then like Furious George and Dirt Bike Annie. It was a stacked bill, and it was pop punk heaven. And we did a tour with the Apers in 2003. I think it was like the only full U.S. tour they ever done, if not one of them. But in that tour, we all played uh, CBGB, Fireside Bowl, Chicago, and uh, so for them it was magic for us. And like 13 of the shows with the Epoxies were just at the time exploding. Do you remember the first time you played Gilman? Yeah, because the first time I played Gilman was actually not the Gooby Goose, it was a band of Barry Pickers. He had one seven And Al Sobrante was at that show, and every time I see him, he reminds me how that band changes life. Yeah. And that's a funny thing, because that it was stuff that kind of became like the high fives. It was it was just mostly uh, Chuck Berry, or did they want to and that's a thing where you talk about Sam Cooke and Bob Dylan is like, how did I discover my Stone? Again, I get to live in rock and roll, so I'm very lucky. I play CBGB and Net Ramones, things. As a huge Johnny Cash fan, like going to see Walk the Line. I'm terrified about the Sam Cooke movie. Yeah. Now it's going to happen. Yeah, um, I think Reese Witherspoon was cool. You can't play Johnny like you can't have a Motorhead cover band. There's only one of those guys. Oh God, do you Lord think knows he tried. Motor, do you think there'll be a Motorhead movie? Why? 
There's a Motorhead live album. There's a DVD. You know, Lend me the movie. Yeah. Lend me the movie. Is an, <laughs> that's that, that should get an Oscar. <laughs> yeah. You know, they, they have these like fathom events, you know? They should just show a Motorhead DVD on the big screen. We'd all be happy, you know? I'd be happy. <laughs> we should do that yeah. again. Yeah. For show. those of you in audience land, Jordan manifested a perfect night, which is included seeing Lemmy the movie the night that Motorhead was doing their 30th anniversary tour uh-huh. and we saw the movie our insults failed the arcing the war field and we ran into the theater and second band had just finished and Motorhead <laughs> yeah it was pretty cool getting <laughs> to learn all about the man the legend and then literally walking well, there he is. <laughs> Pretty good. Yeah. We've had some fun. Yeah, it's a good, it's a good adventure. Well, I very much appreciate this time that you've spent with me. Nap time. <laughs> Thank you very much for coming. Thanks and for having out me. This was great. Sharing the stories and yeah. looking back. And yeah, it was just enough. <laughs> it's fun. It's it, Again, I like to look back now and then. And this was good. Thank you so much. I look forward to the next time you come. We all do, hopefully. Yeah. Don't we? Somebody's listening. <laughs> Hopefully by the next time we meet, we will have seen Motorhead again. Oh, man. I hope so, too. Everybody write let me an email tonight. Tell me you love him on his Facebook page. Well, good luck on the road. Good Thank luck you. with Kepi Land. Thank you. I'm a proud, proud citizen of <laughs> you for welcoming me into the community. Yay. And I guess we'll see you on the next, next return home, probably. See you in the pit. Oh, wait. That's rancid. See you somewhere. <laughs> see you outside of Kepi Land. See you at the pizza parlor. <laughs> Kepi out. <laughs>